And so we're getting into these epistles which are talking to us about church life. And with that, uh, this morning, we get a fun one in 2 Corinthians. So our Corinthian journey is four Sundays. We had two from 1 Corinthians, and we're going to have two from 2 Corinthians. Corinthians were dealing with divisions, weird views of the gifts. They weren't really kind of understanding how to walk together and be together. And so we went with two sermons in Corinthians because it's a pretty common church life problem, which is like you're divided up, chapter 1. And then chapter 13, you're really struggling to focus on the right things, that love is supreme in the life of the church, and the way that you show that, not just say that, is incredibly important. So there's much in the letter to the first, uh, the first letter to the Corinthians, which is actually probably the second at least letter to the Corinthians that Paul writes, uh, but it's the one that we have uh, here in our New Testament. Second Corinthians comes on the heels of that experience, and he's writing about some more things, <clears throat> And what we will be in today is chapter 8, which I know is kind of right there, smack dab in the middle, but 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 give us kind of a view of giving, giving and money, finance, the ways churches are to support one another, which just for our sake, why, why money? Why talk about it in this way? Well, first, the, as we're reading this plan, we see that, but also the, the, the resources, <clears throat> money, things that God gives us are a part of how he is going to move the gospel along to the world through our finances, through our resource, through our homes, through the use of those things for his good purpose is a significant way the church has continued and carried along the work of gospel ministry. And so that's why we talk about money and the way that we're going to talk about it, hopefully, is our, should be our guiding motivation as a church. We'll be in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, starting in verse 1, verses 1 through 15. It starts like this. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. That's Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty has overflowed in a wealth of generosity... On their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints, and this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor. So that, by, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire it. So now finish doing it as well. So that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it sounds a little bizarre, I'll explain it here in a moment. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. 
For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. And that's a lot. So let's go for, uh, to the Lord in prayer for wisdom as we get into 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Father, we come to you this morning needing to hear well, needing to hear accurately what we, uh, what we see here in the text, needing our hearts to engage with you and to have a proper understanding of generosity, our finances, how we support the work of ministry and what you do through that. So meet and lead us through this time. Guard our minds and our hearts that we might hear what is true, and we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, no doubt, money is a funny thing. So you are taught at a young age to recognize the interesting power of money, be it whatever your bank account says, the dollars that you have, it does things. And so when I hand my kids a dollar or a quarter, they're like, money, they get really excited about money. And you lose teeth and you get excited that money is going to show up. And it becomes Christmas time, and those of you who work or get Christmas bonuses or whatever, you get super excited about what it might be, you know, all those things. Like, we, we really have trained ourselves to care about money. But few people say they have enough. And even fewer seem to know what to do with it. I think statistically, we're still outspending our income by about two or three percentage points, you know, on average. So we're spending more than we take, or more than we have. Um, and we just kind of stay at that. So this is back in 2017, but there's a popular website that started to try and track ways that Americans spend their money. And I just think some of these are fun. So we'll just figure out some of the things that we are spending our money on. Uh, $3 billion goes to car repairs from pothole damage. Another $3 billion goes to feeding wild birds, bird seed, your bird feeders. $3 billion. $60 billion on cosmetics, $4.6 billion on playing fantasy football. I have contributed to that, and I'm losing it. I think my team's 2-5, and five, or whatever, 2-6, and six, um, and I'm getting destroyed by them all. I haven't played in 10 years, and now I know why. $85 billion on the lottery, $85 billion. $2 billion in online dating. Good luck. Now, I don't know what is and isn't reasonable. When we see these huge numbers, it's like, that's crazy. I mean, you know, so if you respond with, well, tell me what it isn't. We don't really have a gauge to say what isn't crazy. We're just like, not that, because it seems like a lot. It's a lot of money. And I'm not sure what it should or shouldn't be. I do know that my fantasy football team is not going to win its league. Uh, so I'm confident in that. But now let's take a second. We spend money on things. Let's consider some of the stats on giving. Now, we always have to kind of couple this with when you talk to people who identify themselves as Christians and get their giving habits, you're not necessarily actually talking to Christians, right? Like, so somebody just goes, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian because that's what we are. That's what I do or I go to this church. So when we talk about, you know, the giving habits of people, we have to kind of go, I'm not really sure how that trends, but in broad strokes, I think these numbers are fairly accurate, fairly accurate. But here are just some numbers for the church from the nonprofit source. 
Christians are giving about 2.5% of their income, which, according to these folks, is actually less than giving during the Great Depression by percentage. So we make way more, and we actually give by percentage less, which wouldn't shock me in the least. Uh, Families who are making more than $75,000 a year, uh, 1% of them are giving, you know, even a double-digit percentage of their, their money. Right, so you kind of make. You might be able to give more, but percentage-wise, it may not actually be more. Okay, that's just a number. Thirty-seven percent of regular church attendees and evangelicals, which we always have to talk about that, don't give. They just attend. They don't contribute to the church financially. So one third of us. I'm not, I don't know who you are. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't know who you are, or if you exist in this room. Um, and then this stat, which is interesting, which is 8 out of 10 people who give to churches have zero like, revolving debt. So indebtedness hinders the ability to give, which I think we would all agree to, right? Like if you're just shackled in debt, it becomes incredibly hard to be generous because you have to make payments a lot. So those things are interesting. I'm just going to make a few conclusions off of what we hear in that, which is this. We like to spend money. It's not... I don't think that's a shocker here to hear in a sermon. We like to spend money. It's nice for Americans to spend on stuff. Reasons for our financial situations are certainly nuanced and need to be considered. The situation that everybody might be in, uh, one place or another, their life stage, their medical needs, like all of those things kind of impact where we are. But I would also add to that that many of us do not prioritize giving or have not disciplined ourselves in a way that allows generosity to be kind of a dominant way we view what we do and how we operate within the church because we're always trying to just make ends meet. And I do think this is true too, that in a period of significant material prosperity, giving has not increased in kind. It hasn't tracked. So as we actually get more, we keep more. We don't give more. We hold on to it. We get really excited about a bonus or a raise or whatever else, not because of who we could bless, but because we're already outliving what we currently make, so now we can outlive it a little more. Or out, you know, like we just get more excited. We can kind of increase standard of living, not necessarily, as Randy Alcorn might say, like standard of giving, right? So we take increases like, look at that, look at what I can do, look at what I can buy, versus who can I bless? So these things, I think, are true, and they run into them all the time in church life. So there are absolutely generous people, many of whom are here. Um, but we need to realize that when we talk about money, it is an issue of our heart. It's a huge issue of our heart. And it's like one of those places where people just don't want to go, right? Like, like, don't talk to me about my bank account. Don't talk to me about my giving habits. You can't know that. And I'm just kind of like, why? Why? I remember, I don't know if you elders remember this, but when I was applying here, I was like, if you want to see my tax returns, if you want to see, like, whatever you can, I, I'll, I'll show you. Ask me any question that you want about what I give or what I make or how I spend it, where it goes. I mean, I'm not going to be proud of some of those decisions, no doubt, but I'm not going to hide them. Um, so uh, we have this way, though, of kind of going, when it comes to money, just don't talk to me about it, which is funny because the scriptures seem to talk about it a lot, a lot. Chapters are dedicated to it, but they don't talk about it in the terms that we do. And so when Paul is talking about like this gift of grace, we're like, oh, how kind, like a spiritual graciousness that you have. And he's like, no, no, no. He's talking about giving money and how that's gracious. Like that's what he's saying. Or when he's talking to the Philippians, and he's like, I'm so glad that you guys have been able to renew your concern for me, which just sounds again like heartfelt. And he's like, oh, I know you've always been concerned for me, but you have not had an opportunity to show it. 
right? So, like, like, so Paul's a fundraiser, okay? Just like anybody else who's out there, like, kind of pounding the pavement for the Lord. Like, he knows that raising money and contributing to the needs of the church is a significant part of what he does. So he knows this. In 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, we get some of our formative kind of New Testament principles on giving uh, that I think are incredibly important for us. And I would just say, I mean, I've said this to some of you in the room, but like there's kind of three issues that most adults deal with. You pick one of these three, and it's probably, it's probably on your mind right now, at least one of them. Marriage. You know, like, how could I be a better spouse? How could I get a spouse? Why don't I have a spouse? Uh, why isn't my spouse better? Like, all of those things. Like, that's one. Parenting. How do I be a better parent? How do I do this? How come I can't make my kids perfect? How come my kids aren't like your kids? Like, that's one. Or money. That these three things make up a significant portion of the mental capacity that many adults have. Worry over them, working toward them, trying to figure it out. Like, those three things in some form are often on your minds, on our minds. So today, this morning, we get to go to a passage about money, but specifically about giving and the meeting needs of churches motivated by Jesus. And we'll look in 2 Corinthians 8 this week, and we'll look in 2 Corinthians 9 next week. The Bible, being full of discussions on money, reveals our hearts. Jesus doesn't shy away from talking about money. He doesn't shy away from talking to wealthy people about their views of money. He doesn't shy away from people who are wealthy talking to him about their money. So uh, you have the rich young ruler on one hand. You have Zacchaeus on another. Both of these people who have money. And he's going to talk to them about that. The scriptures talk about it. So we want to talk about it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul is raising money for the Jerusalem church. That's what he's actually doing. The church in Jerusalem, which is interesting because as you read Acts chapter 2, 3, 4, like you see the church contributing to the needs, selling what they have, and giving it to one another. Like so, so we have these kind of big statements about the, how generous those early believers were, and I think that's true. But as you keep reading in the book of Acts, there was a famine. And the famine hit, and it seems as if that had an impact on the condition of the saints in that area. Paul was doing what he could to generate support financially for the Jerusalem church. In fact, at the end of 1 Corinthians, he's talking about this giving, this ability to give. Set aside on the first day of the week, set aside what you can, so he's taking up a collection for another church. He's coming back to that in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 because the Corinthians didn't follow through. And so he's coming back to, well, let's not forget, a year ago you were really excited about this, so, so let's just continue, kind of finish what we had started in our desire to contribute. And so you actually read, I believe, in the book of Romans about uh, that ability to meet the needs of the Jerusalem church financially. And so there's kind of this entourage that was traveling around with money to get back to Jerusalem, which is pretty cool to see. Like, that's, like sometimes I think we over-spiritualize we over New Testament life, and it's like, he was raising money to help other churches meet their needs. That's what was going on in that moment. And he's trying to generate with right reasoning why you might want to do that. So 8, 1 through 15, we're going to see really three movements. We're going to see kind of like the mark of generosity in one and uh, the reflection that that has on Jesus, secondly. And then how does God use our generosity or the generosity of others? So we start with this first one. The first seven verses, we recognize this, that generosity should mark a zealous church, a passionate church, a church that cares about Jesus, that being generous should mark how we operate as a church. I think that's a pretty solid argument, and we're going to see it right here. He's writing to the churches in Macedonia, or to, in Corinth, but he's bragging about 
the churches in Macedonia. Again, the Philippians, the Thessalonians, and the Bereans. These churches, he's like, we want you to know how nice these churches were, how, how giving these churches were, which is pretty funny because in chapter 9, he's actually going to say, and I've already told them how generous you are. And so he's actually bragging about them to each other. And so in chapter 9, which is going to be funny, he's going to go, so you better have the money. <laughs> like, because I already told them you're going to be great. How embarrassing would it be if you don't do that? Because Paul had kind of this way of saying things without saying them. And so he would, he would kind of go, you know, he put the Corinthians in a spot rhetorically where they're like, well, we better show up on this thing because he's already told them we will and he's really excited about how happy we are to give. So he's just calling back what they've already done. So in chapter 8, he's talking about how generous the Macedonian churches are. And in chapter 9, he's saying, I've told them how generous you are. It's just kind of a fun little strategy there. So look, verse 2. In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed into a wealth of generosity on their part. So they didn't have a lot, but it's overflowed. They gave according to their means, as I can testify, but also beyond their means, of their own accord. They just wanted to. They wanted to give more than maybe even Paul would say is wise, because sometimes when we have decisions about generosity, we're like, well, is that wise, right? Like, Paul didn't even go there. He's just like, they wanted to give more, so they gave more. Maybe Paul thought it was crazy that they would have done that, but he's like, they gave beyond what might have even seemed reasonable. Begging us begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints, the Jerusalem church. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. And you look at the language that he's talking about the poorer Macedonians with, you go, well, that's not generally how we talk. Please take my money, right? We use that like in a consumeristic sense. When somebody has a cool product, I'm like, shut up and take my money. You know, those memes or gifts that show up and like, take my money. We don't say that in the church world, do we? Please, Paul, take it. Take it. Begging him that they could participate in giving. Usually it's like, what's the pastor talking about this morning? Giving? Yeah, we can go to brunch. Kind of move on. Don't want that. But he's dedicating a lot of time. Like, they're begging us to do this. So here, Paul points to why he wanted the Corinthians to hear about the Macedonian churches. He starts this whole thing in verse 1 with, we want you to know about how they gave. We want you to know about how they gave. He wanted them to see, he wanted the Corinthians to see that the Macedonian giving was in a position, from a position of affliction and even poverty. How little do they have, I don't know, but their giving was not because they had just stuck it, struck it rich. Oh, I got a lot of extra money, so I can give some more. No, they, they were not in that position. In an extreme poverty. Severe test of affliction. Certainly there are people who are able to give significant sums of money that exist in this world. It could be you, it could be me, it could be many of us. But that doesn't mean that they are significant givers, right? Remember how Jesus is always kind of drawing attention to the ones who give sacrificially, not just the ones who give a lot? I think sometimes we look at sums of money rather than heart behind the giving. And so somebody who could give $10,000 might be giving 1% of their income. And somebody who gives $100 is giving, you know, like lunch money or whatever like that. You might go, well, don't do that. But you understand the reasoning there? Like it's the heart, the widow's might that Jesus points out. Right, the Pharisees are being 
punks and taking advantage of people. And then he, Jesus looks at this widow who gives in all that she had to live on. And it's like, look at her. Look at her heart. And so heart position here is going to be an important part of what's going on. That's what Paul's highlighting. Because I would guess that the Macedonians just couldn't like give overflowing dollars beyond dollars, right? It wasn't like he was just like, man, I, Corinthians, don't even worry about it. Find somebody else to give to. Like, we're good. So he was still taking money from the Corinthians, but it seems like these Macedonians were incredibly generous out of a position of pain or affliction and poverty. They gave, look at verse 2, their abundance of joy, they gave joyfully. They loved the idea of being able to contribute. There should be no joyless givers in the church, but hopeful ones, hope-filled ones. Joyful giving. They were glad to be able to do it. It was an honor for them to be able to do it. Third, they gave from their own will, their own desire. And they did it sacrificially. They went beyond their means, but of their own accord. So they weren't like, hey, I have a credit card. Let me go ahead and just give beyond it. Right? They, they weren't giving things they did not have, which is what we do when we go into debt to give. But they were giving beyond maybe what was reasonable, what a wise financial counselor might do. Why? Because they had an abundance of joy, a desire to see the needs of the churches met, and they were begging Paul to let them be a part of it. So because of this Macedonian zeal, right, because they, they were so enthusiastic about giving, Paul sends Titus, Titus is a fellow worker, right, a fellow minister in the gospel, to get the Corinthians to be able to participate in this offering, which the Corinthians had already wanted to do, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, this is something they had decided to do. So he gives them, and he says, I'm going to send Titus your way <clears throat> so that you can continue to do the things that you need to do. So, <clears throat> Titus is now going to come so that they can finish what they started, so that he should complete among you this act of grace, verse 6, that he can finish it. So, because they gave, now Titus is coming your way, Titus is going to be able to receive the offering so that you too <clears throat> can participate in what is going on. So, listen to this, <clears throat> listen to the last verse, verse 7 of this section. Excel in faith. <clears throat> Sorry, you excel in speech, in knowledge, and in earnestness. Also be seen to excel in this act of grace. So what is he saying? You're already known for being an awesome church. You're already known for this. You excel here, and you excel here, and you excel here, and you excel here. So see to it that you also excel here. Do you see the link? that Paul is making between generous hearts and our holiness, our desire to reflect the Lord. Like, in Paul's mind, our generosity is not an appendage that is just some other part of our life that we think about, but it is an essential part of our reflection of our Lord to one another and to this world. So in the same way you excel, in the same way you love truth, in the same way that you're eager, in the same way that your speech is pure, in the same way that you have knowledge, see to it that you also excel in this way. That generosity is a mark of our growth in Jesus. And giving is an act of God's grace. See to it that you excel in this act of grace also. 
These aren't the ways we often talk about it, right? I mean, we don't, we don't, we don't, we're not like, you know, it's like, oh yeah, and BT Dubs, like if you want to give to our church, you can. I'm like, no, I think Paul would be like, if you don't want to give to the church, why? Like if you don't want to contribute to the needs of the church, I'm going to have to explain more about that like this, you know, into next week as well. Because we're like, well, is it just giving randomly to the church? And like that's the end of it. What do I need to do? Like I think some little guidelines might help us some to think about it. But giving in itself is an act of God's grace. And so you hear Paul being like, why wouldn't you want to be more gracious? Why wouldn't you want to be more gracious? Why wouldn't you want to reflect him more? So this means that giving is no small issue. These first seven verses are showing us this, right? That generosity needs to be seen as a part of our sanctification, our growth in the Lord. That as we grow in the Lord, we grow in generosity. That we might actually start making decisions that free us up to give more. They were looking for opportunities to be generous. They were not begrudging opportunities to be generous. Okay? That's thing number one. Like the Macedonians, giving needs to be voluntary, right? Of your own accord, and sacrificial. The Macedonians are setting an example for the Corinthians, and they set an example for us. We don't want to, as a church, twist people's arms into giving while at the same time knowing that giving is a part of our growth in the Lord. So you kind of teeter-totter, right? You go, well, in the same way that if you're a teacher, I would want to encourage you to teach better and you'll, you'll go after it. Or if you're an encourager, I want to give you opportunities to encourage her. If you're a giver, why don't you have opportunities to give? So it is a part of our growth in the Lord. Our generous hearts and the decisions that we make. And there are things that for our church you could certainly pray about. <clears throat> you can pray that we meet budget. I, I don't think these churches were trying to do the same things that we do where we set a budget at the beginning of the year. What are you going to spend? How much does this cost? How much is that? So <clears throat> it's malleable. The principles here are malleable. But we're, I mean, we've talked and toyed with ideas just as a team to go, what if we were more generous as a church? What if more money? What if a greater percentage of our money went to contributing to the needs of the church around us? Or church planting amongst the unreached. What if a greater percentage of our dollars went towards, you know, relief care that was gospel-centered and just being sure that people could do that? What if, like, like, what if we were known as the church that would do that, like, and joyfully, like the Macedonians, be like, yes, of course I would. So these are things that we even talk about and pray about to go, man, we're entering into budget time. And I know in most churches, money's tight. That's kind of a relative sliding scale thing, right? So, well, you know, my buddy's church, like the annual, the annual giving was $15,000 a year, right? Like that's a pretty normal month for Genesis, kind of right in there, maybe a little more, a little less, depending on how we're doing, I guess. Uh, so, you know, our yearly, or his yearly is kind of our monthly. And then, you know, I've been in a church where his yearly was like one-third of our weekly. And so, again, these things kind of move around, and what it means to be generous. How do we focus on these things? But I think we're at a spot as a church where we would cover your prayers to go, how can we be more generous, more considerate of the needs of others? How could we excel in our generosity? How could we excel in our generosity? Because that applies both to us as individual believers and to us as a church. Right? We want to reflect the same heart. We want to reflect the same desires. So we want to do the same kinds of things. So we're grateful for whatever the Lord does in our midst. We're grateful for you and the ways that you 
uh, contribute. There's things we'd love to do here, spaces we'd love to have. The kids' classrooms get crammed, you know, and we want to be able to train up those kids and not have people be like, I'm in a sardine room, right? There's, you know, like, I had 20 kids this morning in my room, and we're like in, you know, 112 square feet. And you're like, well, get, you know, be content. I'm like, we are content. We'd also love to see what would happen. We could do more. These are things we pray about. We go, how could we be more generous? Be more generous as a church. Meet more needs. Do more things. These are always things that churches are thinking about. But what we want to be sure of and what we want to not budge on is that generosity is a good thing. You cannot be too generous. You cannot outgive God. You can't operate in a way that somehow trumps what Jesus has done for us. And so rather than do that, we want to use Jesus' example as a guiding principle for how we think about what we do personally in our own family finances, corporately as a church. It's what we'd want to be able to do. And so this actually moves to, I think, the crux of Paul's argument in 2 Corinthians 8, in verses 8 and 9, when he simply says this, generosity reflects Jesus. It marks a zealous church, but it actually it reflects Jesus. Listen to what he says. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also is genuine. So what he's saying is, I don't want to force your hand here. I'm an apostle and I have kind of authority in the life of the church to say something to you and have you do it, but I'm not doing that. I'm trying to get you to see why this matters. So I want you to understand God and how your love for him can be demonstrated in your support of the saints. And listen to verse 9. This is it. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor. That means that's the incarnation, right? For your sake became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. So it's interesting that he takes the reality that results in our salvation. Jesus, who has everything, became poor, came to this earth, died for us, gave himself for us, so that through that, you might have what he has. And so there in verse 9, he kind of lays it out. This is why it should matter. Because the salvation of your soul was costly. And what God did for you to bring you to a place you could not bring yourself and to do for you a thing that you could not do yourself, why don't we somehow recognize that and let that translate into an incredibly tangible thing, which is how we provide for others? And this is what I love. I love reading the New Testament and when we're doing it like we are, because you start to see that the things we believe matter. Paul is being incredibly practical with the incarnation and our salvation. He's taking that idea and he's presenting something that's incredibly lofty, right? Because the theology behind the incarnation, you know, God 100% God, 100% man into this earth. Now Jesus exists in a body forever, right? Like Jesus is incarnate, son of God, the second person of the Trinity, that we are saved by his grace. He's taking these ideas, the incarnation and our salvation, 
And he's boiling it down to go, and this is also, this is also why you should be generous. Because look what happened. He had everything. He came to this world for us. Now we get everything in him. And I just love the way he does that. Like it's nothing. He's like, here, let's watch. And he just kind of flips the script. Because theology impacts us, right? So often, like, we think theology is just something that we study. It's just something that we just study. Oh, yeah, that's cool. Oh, have you heard about this concept? Have you heard about that? We'll just jaw about ideas forever. And just think about it. Like, Paul, who was like, he, he provided a lot of the statements that we build our theology on. And yet here he is in 2 Corinthians 9, giving a theology of giving that is based upon the saving work of Jesus. He's actually providing us the context. So what he's saying is, I could, I could just command it of you. Then you should do it because of my authority as an apostle in the life of the church. But I'm not going to do that. Why? Because you should know what Jesus has done for you. You should look at that. That motivation should be a sufficient motivation for you to be generous. Which is funny. Okay, we're going to, even as we get into next week, he's going to give some other motivations. He gives secondary motivations like, don't be embarrassed when we show up and you have nothing. Like, you don't want to be embarrassed. So he'll say that in chapter 9. But still, his driving point is, Jesus did this for you. And so that should translate into what you do in the meeting of needs of others. You can't save them. You can't do what Jesus did. But why don't you reflect that in your habits and in the meeting of needs and recognize that God could use your situation for someone else. And he could, he could take where you are and you could bless somebody else. Consider Zacchaeus when he, we mentioned him already, understood who Jesus was in Luke chapter 19. So, he entered into Jericho, was passing through. Behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He sees Jesus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Right? I, I, I like that quality. And he was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not <clears throat> because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up a sycamore tree, you guys all know the song, to see him. For he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry down, for I must stay at your house today. I love that. I love that. That even Jesus, the Son of God, was dependent upon the hospitality of strangers. Now, they weren't strangers to him, but like, I'm staying with you. I love that. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Oh my gosh, Jesus is coming over. Yo, honey. I said, it's like they, they, there's all kinds of dishes in the sink. Everything's a mess. We're not ready for him. No. When they saw it, they all grumbled. People were mad. He's gone to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. Bugged by it. Zacchaeus stood and said, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come on this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So looking at 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, when you see who Jesus is, it transforms you to the core and affects even the habits of how you give and how you view your things. Zacchaeus saw Jesus for who he was. And he was like, in faith, right? He was like, look what I will do. 
Look what, I, look what I'm going to do. And Jesus wasn't like, well, let me, I'm, I'm going to tell you if that's wise. Like, like, like we like to counsel people. Let me tell you if you should first. He was just like, you're saved, bro. Not because of what he did, but because of what he did was being driven by his faith in Jesus. Okay? His faith in Jesus is the saving thing. And so when he talked about what he's going to do, he'd already made the decision as to who Jesus was. So his generosity was a reflection of Jesus' character. So it's not like, hey, salvation came to you because, because what happens then? We create a law. Well, you've got to give away half your stuff and fourfold all the people you've defrauded. Now, we can't do that. I can't track all that down. So his demonstration of generosity came from his recognition of Jesus. I love when you see those things. So in chapter 9, we see what Jesus did. Zacchaeus saw it even before the crucifixion and the resurrection. He was starting to see this, and it was transforming him. So this is why, for us as Christians, one of these ideas, it's so important for us to focus on our contentment. Because we already know that God has given us everything. Everything. Every spiritual blessing in Christ, we read. And yet, so often, my life, your life, our lives, are driven by discontent and what we do not have. What we do not have. So, of course, we don't prioritize being generous. Because we don't feel like we have enough. God hasn't blessed us enough. He hasn't given us enough. We're not being faithful enough. Or whatever those things are. And so when you see what God has given you, through his poverty we are made rich, it should change your view even of your things. Contentment is a theme that should matter. When you are content, you don't need more. And you're fine with Jesus. More than fine. When you don't need more and you're fine with Jesus, you're free to give. And if you're discontent, then you choke out your generosity because you need more. Right? I mean, no longer is a bump in your salary an opportunity to more greatly bless people. It's an opportunity to more greatly gain things. What house could we get? What thing could we do? What cars could we drive if we had more money? Versus what needs could we meet? What could we see happen? And so, we move to this idea as we continue here in verses 10 and 11. It's pretty cool as the passage kind of ends. He talks about then what generosity can do for people. And you'll hear this. It's God's provision through us or for us. You could be on either one of those. The generosity is God's provision through us for others or from others or through others for us. And so as he gets into 10, 11, 12 and finishes out the chapter or this, this passage, this is what we begin to see. In this matter I give my judgment. This giving benefits you. It is good for you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also desired to do it. So he's just reminding them, you wanted to do this. You said you would. You pledged, right? When we do a pledge drive, like you pledged to give, and I know you wanted to in those moments. So let's just kind of follow through with what we said we would do. So now, finish doing it, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. So what is Paul saying? It isn't just the thought that counts. He's actually saying that. 
You wanted to do it, but why don't you go ahead and finish it so that your desire is matched by your completion? That's what he says. Finish doing it as well so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. What a thought. He's like, I don't want you just to want to give. I want you to give. I want you to finish it. The Jerusalem church needs you. They're hanging on. They're waiting for you. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he or she does not have. So this is where he's just going again. You give in your means. Now, he just said that the Macedonians gave beyond their means. Right? They gave sacrificially, but they gave it of their own accord. And so he's looking at this, and he's saying, this is what you need to know. You shouldn't just become poor. Like, oh, we're not just going to shift around poverty. You don't just become poor so that they can become rich. Like, now i got to deal with you. Now my next letter, I'm going to be taking up an offering for the Corinthians. I don't need to do that. So he's going, it's fair that you have what you need. So give abundantly and give generously. I'm not saying that you should just give and now you all go broke. Because we've just shifted it. We shifted it from you to Jerusalem. Now we've got to go back. So he's not saying that. Also, this is why, even though sometimes in like our, our minds we might go, oh, well, it seems like the early church was like socialist, right? Like, because that's how we, we think of it. Like, they just all, no, because this is, this is volitional. They're opting in to their generosity, right? Now, they're opting into it, but they also, together, if we are believers, we should be contributing to the needs of one another, right? So it's kind of both of those things. But it's not forced upon them. They're invited into it because God has set the example. So that's why it's a little different. That's why he's not being like, so you all need to count out how much money you make and divide it by whatever, and that's what you give. He's not doing that. Give as you are able. Give as your means. I do not expect you to go be burdened so that someone else isn't because that seems silly. That's like sometimes you get on the guilt trip where you're like, so-and-so needs a car and I have a car. It doesn't seem fair for me to have a car, so now I'll give them my car and I won't have one. Like, but don't you work downtown? Like you, you, now you have to find a way to get to work. That may not work. Maybe. Maybe you could sell your car and buy two. Right? There are other things that you could do, but just giving up what you have so someone else can have it may not actually be the most beneficial thing. That's what he's arguing here. Verse, verse 14, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need that there may be fairness. So you supply for their need. At times, they're going to supply for your need. There was a time in Genesis's history, some of you were there for the crossover Bible fellowship era moment. And that existed in part because Shirley Acres, where this church was meeting at a time, flooded. And so we were without facility Okay, there's no facility for Genesis to meet in. And so how many of you were at the crossover Bible fellowship days? How many in this room are a part of that? A couple of us? Yeah, a handful. Some of you are like, what? Yeah. So, so Pastor Blake Wilson gets in touch and says, why don't you, we have a space. Why don't you use it? Just use it. And I reached out to him as I was preparing this sermon a couple of weeks ago just to say thanks. Because what is he doing, right? We're in a spot where we're like, we can't, we can't do the next thing. We don't even have a place to meet. And so he's like, I have a place you can meet. Right? What's happening there? His means, that church's ability, is supplying our need. Right? And there are times when our ability supplies the needs of others. 
That's the argument that he's making here. There are going to be times when you need your needs met by your church. And there are going to be times when you need to meet other needs. There are going to be times when other churches are going to bless you. And there's going to be times when you're going to bless them. So just kind of expect it. That this should be a way that we operate. We must depend on one another. But what's happening here, what he's saying is, this is God's provision. This is God's provision for you to have what you need and to be supplied. That's God working out things on your behalf. And he uses the example of Israel in the wilderness in verse 15, when God provided food for them to eat. And what he's saying is, the family that had a lot of kids gathered what they needed and they ate. And the family that didn't have a lot of kids gathered what they needed and they ate. The person who needed a lot and the person who needed a little had what they needed. And this is why we have to be attentive to the needs of families. Some families have needs, legitimate needs. I'm not just saying like, oh, well, we need to live in a you know, 3,000 square foot house. Like legitimate needs. You know, like that, that, that for now, if your family's gigantic, we'll see. But there are things that every person in every household has to deal with that change what their actual needs might be. So, Right? One thing we live with in our house is diabetes. Most of you in this room don't have to buy di- like insulin. Okay? You don't. We do. So it gets factored in to how it costs for us to live. Because it has to. That's, that's, that's what he's saying. Like, like we can't determine, you know, we don't set the line because then we create a law. We recognize the needs of people, but along with that, the generosity of Jesus And knowing that whether you have significant needs or demand, right, for food in that regard. I have a buddy whose wife is pregnant with, I think, their 13th. Yeah. Yeah. They live in Louisiana. If I could recruit them here, we'd grow by like 30%. Um, And so his needs are different, right? He has to make more than I do. He must. Because feeding 15 people many becoming teenagers, is pretty expensive. You don't look at that and go, you're crazy, right? Like, I get it. I'm not being ungenerous. He's in fact, one of the most generous people that I know in the world. But his needs are different. But God is still the one providing what is needed when it is needed, which is what I love. So we start this week with this idea that Generous churches, zealous churches are generous, and they're generous because of Jesus. They need to recognize their generosity as God's using of them to meet the needs of others, or God using others to meet their needs. And so we'll get into more next week as we look at how these things fit together even better, and what are the results of our giving because it's pretty cool like it's like throwing a pebble into a lake and you see all these ripples and Paul in chapter 9 he starts to talk about and then this happens and then this happens and then this happens and then this happens so he starts talking about all these cool things that happen because you go we're in prayers that would have never been prayed and gratitude that would have never existed are happening because you said we're going to be generous because God was generous